Good evening. Goodbye Forever by Nat Chang Rinpoche, Chapter 18, Part 1. I looked around me at the familiar world of my parental home and laughed. It looked entirely as I might have expected it to appear. Chapter 18, Into India. Rose and Valerie, whatever the phase of moon had been in Exeter, were eclipsed by the glaring sun of India. I'd send a card, naturally, but our continued close association was not prudent, given my fundamentally monogamous determination. What, however, had happened to monogamy on the night in question? I was a hypocrite, or at least that night had made me a hypocrite. There were two options in terms of abjuring hypocrisy. I either had to accept that I was not entirely monogamous, or I had to know that such a night could never recur. I had decided immediately after the event that such a thing would never recur. Of that I was certain, but some years would have to pass before I could feel that I was capable of governing myself under all circumstances. Would the notion of youthful folly lend leniency to self-judgment? Possibly. The ménage à trois hadn't been my idea. I'd simply acquiesced to it. Having acquiesced, however, I'd not been noticeably reserved. Acquiescence was not a valid justification. On the other hand, it had been too late to show reserve. It would have been gauche in the extreme to have had a panic attack and fled the bedchamber. Life was for learning or so I'd heard. What did I learn? I had no idea. Maybe I learned nothing. Most people don't live and learn. There is nothing automatic about learning as part of living. Learning is possible, certainly, but one has to gain an understanding sufficiently cogent as to preclude further folly. I was still quite capable of further folly, visions and meditation notwithstanding. Be that as it may, whatever I failed to learn, I had experienced a welter of dreams that challenged my sense of reality. More than dreams, there had been lucid dreams and quasi-visionary experiences, and they remained far more vivid than the riotous romp and circumstance of nocturnal concupiscence. I felt that the tent that I had seen had been real. The two dark-haired young ladies in the tent were in some way connected with me. I remembered knowing that they were sisters. That might have been an impression in hindsight, based on Rose and Valerie acting the part of being sisters. No, that was not how it was. I really knew that they were sisters, but I had no idea how I could possibly know such a thing to be a fact. I knew the difference between factual knowledge and intuition and was careful not to confuse the two. I therefore knew the sisters existed somewhere 
or that they had existed somewhere and that I was somehow related to them. I decided after a great deal of self-critical evaluation that although I should not have gone along with Rose and Valerie's picaresque proposal, it had served as the basis of unearthing a plethora of dreams and visionary experience. Would those dreams have occurred in any case? They could have been ripe to occur. And what of the visions or the hallucinations as a psychiatrist might diagnose them? I struggled with the idea of visions and hallucinations and came to the conclusion that if they had been hallucinations, I would not be able to function as a relatively normal person. Psychiatric cases were probably not adequate building site workers or reliable vocalists in blues bands. I may have been weird in many ways in terms of conventional society, but I was more functional than many hippies I'd met. I decided in the end that these were questions for alarm. They were not dilemmas I could unravel on my own. Whatever the case was, I would avoid complying with the creation of secondary causes that conflicted with my fundamental ethics. The whole question of primary and secondary causes is a serious matter. I'd read about primary and secondary causes, but was shocked by the fact that I'd been ambushed by a primary cause of which I seemed to have no foreknowledge. Everyone, apart from realised beings, are programmed with primary causes and they inhabit a minefield of secondary causes. Some primary causes can be relatively harmless, but others can be lethal. What if somewhere in my perceptual biochemical karmic makeup there was a primary cause for murder? That was unlikely, as I'd only acted violently once by punching Adrian Parrott on the nose at the age of nine. I had been sorry that I had felt there was no choice but to resort to physical violence. I had only done so to defend myself and was sorry about it afterwards, so I was probably safe there. When it came to accidental amorous assignations, however, what was the primary cause there? What habit from what past life had caused me to act against my current convictions? <coughs> Having thought about it for a while, it struck me as amusing. <coughs> I was agonising about the possibility of being concupiscently waylaid by another two young ladies. That was extremely unlikely. Such an event wouldn't recur unless I sought it out. And even then it was improbable, because although I wasn't ugly, I knew I wasn't any more than averagely desirable. After my return from Exeter, Temporal reality had telescoped. I'd spent the summer working at the building site as a hoddy, and one morning, 
after two and a half months hodding bricks, I had more than enough money for the long journey. Months had become weeks, weeks became days, and I was on a train to London, headed for Heathrow Airport to board an aeroplane. Suddenly, almost unexpectedly, I was in India. India was both what I expected and something else entirely. India was the consequence of a long series of choices, but now the situation was choiceless. I'd heard about culture shock, naturally, but had no idea whether I was experiencing it. I was saddened by the poverty and disease, but delighted by the everyday gentility of ordinary people. I met dishonesty and outstanding genuineness, avarice and unprecedented generosity. India teemed with unexpected prodigies, some diminutive, some immense. It seemed hard to imagine how a country functioned with the degree of chaos that characterised most aspects of life. This, I realised, was the main cause of culture shock, the chaos. And that chaos was emptiness. Emptiness is the great lesson that India teaches. Anyone willing to embrace uncertainty, insecurity, improbability, ambiguity, equivocality, dubiety, diffidence and implausibility can allow India to change their life perspective. It didn't take long to come to this understanding. All I had to do was to observe people living their everyday lives without the degree of certainty that I took as normal. I could see that it was entirely possible to entertain ever-decreasing levels of security. The customary need for security was conditioned by society. It wasn't hardwired. Therefore, one could acclimatise to insecurity just as one acclimatised to heat. Improbability edged its way to becoming a cause of delight rather than a cause of anxiety. Anxiety could dwindle, if one allowed it, into disquiet, uneasiness, vague apprehension, and finally into a relaxed inquisitiveness. That process could take months, but I managed to leave culture shock behind after a day or two by employing the good old-fashioned pull yourself together and stop being a wimp method. I booked my ticket at Old Delhi Railway Station and having six hours to occupy, I went to visit the Red Fort. The Red Fort was the residence of the emperors of the Mughal dynasty for 200 years until 1857. It houses a number of highly interesting museums and an arcade with three extensive Tibetan antique shops. I entered each of them and boggled. Here were things I'd seen in museums in Britain and in old photographs of Tibet. I had limited finances, 
and duly had items put aside for my return to Britain, leaving myself lighter of hard-earned resources. Money was to be sent out to me in the form of British postal orders from the sale of my musical equipment, a Marshall bass amplifier, PA system and sundry instruments. I would survive, but I wished I had more resources for the wonderful Vajrayana appurtenances I had seen. Some things, after which I had lusted, were non-essential, and so I told myself that avaricious obsession was not a healthy state of mind for a Buddhist. I decided that I was extremely lucky to have found what I found, and was soon most content with what I had acquired for future practice. The overnight train from Old Delhi Station took me to Pattencott, I'd been advised that second-class air-conditioned two-tier was superior to first-class. The air-conditioning was simply a fan, but it worked well enough. Hot and humid. I'd expected that, but not the oppressive, omnivorous, omnipresent intensity it could reach. It cooled, however, as the ramshackle bus to Arab Upper Dharamasala ascended higher into the ameliorative coniferous green of the Himalayan foothills. I'd not expected the brown sky of the plains, and to my relief the sky gradually became an understandable blue. Moat by moat, the dust of the lower altitudes disappeared as the foothills of Himachal Pradesh drew closer. On reaching Upper Dharamasala, I took another bus of further decrepitude, a thousand feet higher, to MacLeod Gange. That was my destination. I'd escaped the heat and dust. I was relieved to alight from the bus in the mist or cloud, whichever it was. To my great joy, I was met by Yeshe Kandro, the wife of Amji Pemadorje. I had corresponded with her as a pen friend and she took me to Amalanorga's house where I was to reside for an extremely low rent that included breakfast. Amalanorga was Yeshikandro's aunt and she was also the Chung lady, one of the Tibetan barley beer brewers of the village. She proved to be an entirely dear late middle-aged lady with a wonderful laugh and a lovely voice. She sang mantra most of the time. Om Mani Padme Om Mani Padme The awareness spell of Chen Rezik. After a few days acclimatising to life in the cloud Gange, I started taking classes with Geshe Nawang Dagye at Gangchen Kishong. I realised from the first class that my insatiable Tibetological reading was largely irrelevant. The books I'd researched and studied had built a picture in my mind which was quite dissimilar from what I found. My previous study proved to be of little help. One afternoon, walking back to MacLeod Gange, I chuckled. I'd arrived with some sense of being knowledgeable 
but realised I was an ignoramus. Not that the books I'd read were not factual, but the ethos I felt them to have pervaded had little to do with where I was in any practical sense. I wasn't disappointed, far from it. I was merely slightly discombobulated. I was ready to learn, however, and set to with zeal to gain a whole new outlook. 